0: Good evening. Again, it's a pleasure to be with you all again on this Lord's Day and uh, had a great time of fellowship with you this morning, and I look forward to being with you again uh, tonight and the weeks to come uh, as we worship together in spirit and in truth. I would like for you to turn your Bible this evening to the book of Haggai, the Minor Prophet, in the second chapter and the first four verses. Again, this is the book of Haggai, the second chapter and the first four verses. And in this passage of the minor prophet, we see Haggai writing to the children of Israel through the inspired pen in God's own words by saying that in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, uh, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, the book uh, of Haggai, as it goes with most of the minor prophets, really all of them, and especially the major prophets, they deal largely in part with sin and the punishments and that's one of the things we were speaking of uh, earlier today in our class on Ezekiel is the punishment that God had on the children of Israel through their paganism, their idolatry, uh, their fornication, and the long list of sins they partook in as they worshiped these false gods, uh, be it Baal or Molech or the such like. And so we constantly punishing the children of Israel for their willful rebellion. And what we see is almost like what we see in the book of Joshua, a cycle of apostasy, where the children of Israel are recognized to God, they're living according to his law, and then they fall away. They go after the sins of their uh, ancestors, they go after the sins of those who are around them in their neighboring countries, and then because they fall away, God then destroys them. He then punishes them. He might send them away. He might cause them to die. And the such like, and because of that, Israel then repents,
1: and their righteous did but not the time of the of and that happened to the the that to be the that the that their that happened to be on the that on the
0: history the camera that happened to be the to understand the background of happened the Bible, but for us to understand the exact to the uh, that the prophets that either condemning or the encouragement that they're trying to the both. And that's the uh, title for tonight's lesson is God's encouragement with her service.
1: But with the background of the pattern, we see the battle in the Babylonian capital, and we see three characters in the place in 660 B.C., 590
0: B.C. to 586 B.C., which was uh, the one that led to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. We see the Babylonian Empire, they come into Jerusalem, they sack the city, they destroy the temple, they take out the people of Israel, and they even destroy the walls of the city, they destroy the nation of the city, and then they leave the
1: boat to the end. But in 559 BC, so we have 586
0: was the final pairing of land. Thirty years later, in 559 B.C., Cyrus the Great at the occupant reason why the joking Greece were being faithful to the and why they were faithful to Ahasuerus was to try and win his baby
1: robe in an manner, and
0: Jerusalem, which was a symbol of God's presence and God's acceptance of the children of Israel. But there was Nehemiah also, who was essential in the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And he has a great story that we see throughout the Bible and throughout as to how the people would carry a sword in one hand and a hammer in the other to so rebuild the city. Uh, and it's a great defense and uh, illustration we can give as to how one is to treat the church. We're going to build up the church of the church different illustrations that we can come from
1: through these prophets and through the uh, examples of these prophets. But there was also two other characters that were seen, that were fundamental in the rebuilding of Jerusalem
0: directly into the kingdom. The would be Jehoshaphat, the high priest, or Joshua, the high priest, and then Zerubbabel,
1: who was the son of Sheolteon, who was the governor of Judah. These two would be great Just for the purpose of why this book is being written, and not its written,
0: to, to not well, this written, and not its to and that
1: we have within ourselves. And because of this, it's important for us to understand that God cares about the discouragements
0: we go through. And so God isn't going to give us some lackluster plan of how
1: we can grow. God isn't going to give us some lackluster plan to how we can feel joy in our spiritual lives and our spiritual growth. God is going to give us something beneficial. He's going to give us something full. He's going to give us something complete that will make sure that this work is in these first three chapter, uh, verses of chapter 2, that in the seventh month on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, speaking out to Zerubbabel the son of Shoteah, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and to all the Roman people, and say, Who is left among you? Who saw this ever seen and every kind of painting, every kind of drawing, it doesn't even compare to the beauty that the Titan's Temple actually was. Really, my mind can't even fully comprehend.
0: We see this kind of figure being given towards the cedars of Lebanon because this was a beautiful wood. It was an expensive wood. It was one that was one of a kind. We also see with this cedar of Lebanon that the inside of the temple, they would outline the floors with ornamented buds, with flowers, with cherubim, and the such like. And so what I kind of imagine is how we have these wooden panels. You can imagine these wooden panels being made from the cedar. And as it goes down from the ceiling down, you see these individuals carving out the shapes from those things. Now, what have they messed up on one of those buttons? They have to restart. They have to restart that cedar panel to
1: try to make it just right. chapter 7, verses 15 to 22, and they also had many different decorations of those contained uh, that are described in that record. And so there are
0: was built it's construction it's immaculate nature we see these older men in Ezra chapter 3 10 through 13 weeping weeping as the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid whereas the younger ones who didn't see that glory they were trying to cheer and so you weren't able to discern the sound between the cheering and the sounding of the weeping as that event transpired and so there was a great deal of dissatisfaction among the Jewish nation. And as we see, Zerubbabel, the one who Haggai is writing to in this letter, who he's writing to in this book, in this prophecy, Zerubbabel was in this discouraged number of Jews. And Joshua, the high priest, and the remnant of the people, there were also others. Uh, but he would then say, "'Who is left among you who saw this house in former glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes?' And so you see these individuals, they see Israel in its former glory, they see it in its power that it once had when it was right with God. They see it in its full potential. And now they are nothing but a remnant. They are nothing but a uh, fraction of what they were before. And because of that, obviously, they become discouraged. And I do think there is a great application that can be made of this mentality to us. Now, just as there was this negativity of the children of Israel, and viewing this previous temple and comparing it to the one now, I do see a great deal of, of unneeded negativity. There does need to be a level of negativity, and this is obvious when you read the prophets. We do have to have uh, caution when we look at the church today as we see liberalism grow, as we see uh, denominationalism grow, as we see a lack of care, of study of the Bible. We do need to have our caution. We do need to have our negativity whenever it comes to those things. But what I'm speaking of is almost the woe-is-me mentality, the mentality that everything and everything, everything, that is possible in this world, it's not possible for anyone to accept the gospel, that it's not possible for the church to grow, that everything basically is done, everything is over. There's no hope. There's no hope for us. There's no hope for the Christian. There's no hope for growth. There's no hope for personal evangelism. That kind of negativity is what I see taking prevalence in many uh, congregations of the Lord's Church today. And it is what we might justly call the good old days mentality. The idea that, well, when we look 50 years ago, we see so many people being added on. We see so many different baptisms uh, through meetings and things such as that. And some people take it to one entirely different extreme of saying that no one wants to hear the gospel anymore. I can't tell you how many times in my two years at that school of preaching did I hear the phrase, people don't want to hear the gospel anymore. And I found this in two different ways. Some of them were sound brethren who simply weren't evangelizing. And in other ways, they were liberals trying to make an excuse as to why we need to make our outreach things such as football games or baseball games. And that's what's going to convert souls to Christ. Uh, But never did I ever see an encounter where someone would say something such as, people just don't want to hear the gospel anymore and not be in one of those two different categories. You also have, as we were saying, the, the idea we used to have 30 baptisms in each meeting. We also have, 50 years ago, we used to have a blank amount of members. We have things such as young people today just don't want to learn like they used to. And so many of those things, while they are true to some extent, it can take over our minds to being in almost this completely negative state of seeing that there is no hope, and because of that, we completely give up on any outreach, on any personal evangelism, on any aspect of growing, And that I do see as being what is killing off many of our congregations today, is this discouragement. But now while these things are true, while these things can be true to some extent, while we might not have 30 baptisms every time we have a gospel meeting, while we might not grow like we used to 50 years ago, this this, looking back at the past, it can be a blessing and it can be a curse to us. Now it can be a blessing in the sense that we can look back at the church when it was growing, and say, what was it that they were doing that we're not doing anymore? It can be a blessing in that sense, but it can also be a curse in that it can give us this woe is me mentality that the world is done, the church is done, our time is over. I've even had members of the church telling me in 30 years from now there's not going to be a single church of Christ anymore on the road. That is a terrible, terrible attitude. And you try telling someone who wants to devote their life to the ministry that, uh, how how much does it want you to be a full time minister then if you're being told there's not a place that's going to ever have you preach uh, 30 years from now? And so that that can be extremely damaging, uh, especially for people who don't actually understand the great blessing the church is in this country. But now, why is it that the church doesn't grow like it used to? This is something I do think is essential for us to understand. The world has always been the same, brethren. The world has always been rebellious. It's always hated God. It's always loved the wisdom of men over the foolishness of the cross. The world hasn't changed. What has changed in many places is us. What has changed in many places is our way of teaching people. What has changed in many ways is our way of trying to grow the church or the lack thereof. The world has always been in rebellion with God. It's not going to get any more in rebellion. Uh, But we also see, though, this lack of evangelism, this lack of teaching, and this lack of our own personal failure to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I think the problem truly is. But when we consider the children of Israel and this building of the temple in Haggai chapter 1, Haggai deals with this exact same issue. In Haggai, the temple isn't rebuilt yet. The temple is laying in ruins. The temple is destroyed still even though they've been in capti- or been out of captivity and been in Jerusalem for several years. But the temple's still destroyed. Now why? Why is the temple still destroyed when they've been there for years with the tools to do it? Well, in Haggai chapter 1, 3 through 11, he gives us the reason. And the reason wasn't with God. The reason wasn't with God's message. The reason wasn't with God's encouragement. The reason was with the children of Israel. It wasn't with the nations outside of them not allowing them to grow. The king's given them all the power that they needed to rebuild the temple. What changed wasn't the king, what changed was the people of God. And in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, we see that then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, the temple, lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm, and he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord." You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors." Now in verse 9, this is a clear reflection of the Lord's church today. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, did God make all of their progress vain because of my house that lies in ruins while each one of you busies himself with his own house? Why does the church, why is the church in the state that it is in today? Because what we have today in the Lord's Church is worldliness within it. We see so much within the Lord's Church, within members of the Lord's Church, a focusing on the physical aspects of this life and a complete disregard for the spiritual. Many times, whenever we look at things such as families, how is it that we raise our families? Well, many times people would tell their kids emphatically, Make sure you have a good house. Make sure you get a good job. Make sure you marry a pretty girl. Make sure that you get a good uh, career going for you. Make sure you get in a good education. And we put all that emphasis as we raise up our children. But no emphasis on the Bible. No emphasis on church. No emphasis on their dedication to God. And so when we scratch our heads and wonder why is it that half of our youth are leaving the church when they get out of college and dedicating themselves fully to their jobs, it really shouldn't surprise us. That's what we've raised our children to believe is the meaning of life. To get a good job, to get a good career, to get a good house, to get a good car. Whereas the Bible studies, the personal devotionals, the raising up our children, bringing them up in the faith, goes to the back burner. We've risen our children to be worldly and we come under this false presumption that we're raising them to be godly because we take them to church a couple hours of a week. And we expect the preacher, we expect youth ministers, we expect all these different things to completely shape their entire culture, whereas they're at home 99% of the time being fed physical, worldly garbage. And so it should be no surprise that over the last few decades, as a couple of generations have gone by with this raising up, that the world today, many members in it, That the Lord's church today is vastly worldly. And so our primary mission is the gospel, of focusing on it, focusing on its truths. And as we see the church as it's in the shape today, we need to ask ourselves, what was the reason the children of Israel were not building the temple? Well, God says it. The problem wasn't with the hammer. The problem wasn't with the nail. The problem was with the people. And likewise today when we hear things such as no one wants to hear the gospel anymore. People have given up. People don't want to hear it anymore. And so we need to go to other things. The problem is not with the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. And when one doubts in the power the gospel has, one is doubting in the very power of God. One is doubting in his omniscience that he knew what would save the church. He knew what would grow the church. He knew what would develop a man to eternal abode in heaven. The issue isn't with the gospel. But with the children of Israel, just as the problem wasn't with the hammer, with the church today, the problem isn't with the gospel. It's with those who are wielding the gospel, or those who know the gospel but choose not to wield it. And so many times, we might face this discouragement, but the very fact of the matter is that we need to wake up when we see the church struggling. And see, what is it that we are doing that's not causing the church to grow? What is it that I am missing in my personal life of Christ in spreading His gospel? What is it that I am missing? Not what the world's missing. The world is without the gospel. The world doesn't love God. But what is it that I am doing to spread the love of God and to share it with others that they might love Him? And so God, He does care about us. And because of this, we can see very simply put, just as he encourages the children of Israel to begin building, he cared about the children of Israel. He didn't want the temple to lie in ruins as to how the, these foreign nations would look at the temple in rubble, in heaps, in smoke. It was a great insult to them because what it would do, it, w- it wasn't the physical temple that caused Israel to be powerful, but it was what, w- it was what the temple represented The temple represented God's presence with the children of Israel. And when that temple was destroyed, those foreign heathen nations would look at it and say, Where is your God now? Where is He? You who say that you worship the one true God, where is your God now? The temple's been lying in ruins for decades. And so as a personal insult to the children of Israel, this temple was lying in ruins, but they did nothing about it. And God didn't want them to be in that shape. He didn't want them to be in that state of discouragement, so he writes this book to teach them, to grow them, to develop them, to see what it is that they need to do to make sure that they are restored to God and to their rightful place with Him. And so God encourages each and every one of us through this book that as we see the problems that do face the church today, what we need to do is put emphasis back on the book, on the gospel, become biblically centered, and not only just in the church, in the assembly, but within our everyday lives. And as we encounter those who are without Christ, without hope in this present world, we spread it to them. And we have that Word of God as the man of God we see in Psalm chapter 1, always meditating on the law of the Lord. But the second point I would like for us to make is that God, He encourages the discouraged, to persevere. God, He has encouraged us through His Word. He has encouraged us by by the very fact that He has given us the means to grow the church, to fix the problems in it. That's very encouraging, that God has given us all the materials that we need to make sure His will is accomplished. But He doesn't just leave it there, but He gives us words of encouragement so that we might push through as we choose to build, as we choose to restore, as we choose to save. And we see in the very first part of this verse, and he says it several times, but to be strong. He says this to Zerubbabel, he says it to Joshua, and he says it to all the people of Israel, to be strong. The world today is in full opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world is full of opposition today to the great restoration plea. You Go back to the New Testament for our rule of faith. To push the emotions aside, to push the, the factual uh, inconsistency aside, and to go back to the book, to go back to reason, to go back to consistency, and to see what it is that God has commanded us to do, and to follow God and God only. Not to follow the traditions, the commandments of men to follow the traditions of God and the tra- traditions of the apostles as they were given by the Holy Spirit. But he would say to them to be strong, and he would also say to them in the last part of chapter 4, to work, for I am with you. Now, the first part, to be strong, is that God has used this form of encouragement to be strong, to persevere, to withstand those attacks, to withstand that rebellion to God's people. He's used this word many times. He used it in the book of Zechariah that the Lord was to say, Let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouths of the prophets who were with you on that day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. In Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, he encourages Joshua to be strong and courageous, for I am with you. He tells Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, this is an instruction that Paul would give to the church at Corinth to be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. And then Paul encourages the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 13 to be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might and then to put on the whole armor of God that you may withstand the wiles of the devil. To shield yourself with the the shield of faith, with the breastplate of truth, to follow after the things that are God's and not the things that are men's, to overcome the spiritual warfare that's ahead of us and to persist in the ways of God. And he would also encourage Timothy, the young minister, to be strong and to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also, to share in suffering as good soldier of Christ Jesus. And so God has called his servants, he's called us as Christians to be strong in the faith, to be strong in how it is that we know the Bible, how it is that we reason with the Bible, how it is that we deal with people, to be strong in our hearts, to where we don't become angry when someone disagrees with us, but patient, knowing that we are questioning everything they have been taught to believe. And this is one thing I truly, uh, was a a burden to me many times in door-knocking campaigns and the such-like, was many people would see door-knocking as a way of knocking on the door, the first thing they bring up is baptism. And if you're not a member of the church, you're going to hell. And if they say those two things, the person is just going to throw away everything they've been taught for the last 50 years and follow us. No verses of Scripture, no arguments, no love. And then they scratch their heads when the door slammed in their face. And so we need to be strong in the way that we try to understand people. If someone were to knock on our doors... And tell us to forget everything we believe about the Lord's church, about salvation in that church, about baptism, about faith, and about grace. To throw all that away without giving a single verse of Scripture on the way there, without a single consistent reasoning, I don't think a single one of us would do it. But then we expect that of those who are not members of the body of Christ. And so we need to be strong in our reasoning and in our relationships with one another. But God has called His servants... Not only to be strong, not only be persistent, but to work. See, it's one thing to be strong against false doctrine, and it's another thing to work to convert others from that false doctrine. And so God, He's called us to work in the kingdom. He hasn't just called us to quote a lot of verses uh, in Bible class. He hasn't just called us to have a good memory of the Scripture. But He has called us to put that memory, to call, put that knowledge of the Bible to use, and to use it for the furtherance of His kingdom. Now, why is it the church has stopped growing? This is a very popular question that ha- happens many oftentimes uh, to be asked. But why is it the church has truly stopped growing? Well, just like as we've said with the book of Haggai, a lack of work, of focusing on our own lives and not the lives of others, of put, putting so much emphasis on this world and the carnal things of it, but not the spiritual things of God and of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But God, He has called each and every one of us to be workers. And we have been saved for the purpose that we might become workers. Now, a very very popular passage we see many times trying to support the faith-only doctrine is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It's a verse that many people try to bring up to try and argue that we are saved by faith and not of works, and therefore we don't have to do anything to be accepted by God. What we have to do, though, is just believe. And if we believe, then everything is okay. No repentance, no working, no attendance, just faith, just belief. And we got our ticket punched. Well, what we see in the very next verse of Ephesians chapter 2, right after he would say that, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. Right after he says that, he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them, which God prepared beforehand. And so God has saved us for the purpose of becoming workers. Now, of course, he's saying here, lest anyone should boast, we do not works that we might inherit or that God might owe us eternal life. And that's something we do need to understand. But God, through His grace, through His mercy, He sent His Son to this earth to give us a new covenant. And through that grace... He has given us a pattern to obey, and that in doing so, through His own grace, through His own unmerited favor, we might be saved. But in the sense, though, of this kind of works that is spoken of by Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, this isn't a work of one's own merit. This is a work that God has authorized through His Word, through His grace, and through His Son. And so we've been saved for the whole point, for the whole, the whole essence of being workers to save others also. In John chapter 6, verse 26 and 27, we see that labor in the kingdom, labor in this life towards God, it's absolutely essential to be saved. We see in John chapter 6 that Jesus would answer, and He would say, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking Me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on Him the Father has set His seal. And so we are to labor for the Word of God. We're to labor for Jesus Christ, the bread of life. We're to work diligently that others might partake of that bread of life. And then our labor needs to be continuous. Our labor isn't just to be a once-and-done thing where we do our good deed for the day, our good deed for the week even, and our tickets punched, we're good. It has to be something that's constant. It's a lifestyle. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, we see, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So our work, it needs to be persistent. It needs to be in a persevering manner but it also needs to be continuous. Our lifestyle, all that we're about as New Testament Christians is to call people to the grace of God, to the Son Jesus Christ, to the obedience of the Gospel, and to the salvation that's found within His church. That's what we're all here for. That's what God has called us for. And of course, He's called us into this great body, this great fellowship of believers, so that we might strengthen one another and encourage one another, just as Haggai did with the children of Israel, just as Zechariah did with the children of Israel, just as Nehemiah did with the children of Israel. We are to encourage one another to work for the Lord, to save souls, and to build up the body of Christ. That's what the Christian life is all about. We are saved so we might save others. And so it is a great hope to know that we have a God today who lives in this present world, who understands, who cares about the discouragements that we face. That while we might see congregations of the Lord's church dying out, while we might see them discouraged, we don't allow that discouragement to affect us. But instead, through a loving, kind manner, we see the power that the gospel has. And we see that if we put that gospel to use, the church will grow. And that if we put common reason to use, the church will grow. And that in doing so, God has given us a great word of hope, and He showed for us that He's cared for His servants throughout all history, and that He will do so throughout the ages. Now, have you been weighed down with the discouragements as great that we as brothers and sisters can help you in regards to the church? Have you been discouraged in your own personal life for the church, or have you been per- uh, discouraged by the church in general? Well, there are things that we need to do uh, to help one another and build one another up. And one of the greatest things is we are to bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. And we simply can't bear one another's burdens if we don't know those burdens in the first place. We can't help and encourage one another when we know that we are not uh, discouraged. And so we have to know those things. And so uh, we have this time to make those things right with one another. But also, if you haven't been strong in your own Christian life, if you haven't been faithful to God through the spreading of His gospel, God has given you a way uh, to forgive you of that. He has given you the option of repentance and prayer. The second law of pardon we see in Acts chapter 8, verse 22. Now maybe it is that you're not a member of this great body of believers, the church of the living God, of the church of the Son of God, and you want to know how it is that you can become a member of that great institution. Well, we see that it is essential to be in as in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, we see that salvation is in the church, that Christ is the Savior of the body. And if one is not a member of that body, they do not have Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so salvation is in the church and is absolutely essential in order for one to be saved. Well, one becomes a member of the church by hearing the Word of God, Romans chapter 10, and verse 17. Through that hearing of the Word of God, Uh, one then believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He came onto this earth to die for our sins, that He is God in the flesh, that He established His new covenant through that death, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15. And as He established that new covenant, He has then given us the plea to repent of our sins, Matthew chapter 10, verse 33, and that through repenting of those sins, turning away from them to follow after the ways of God, we then confess Him as our Lord and Savior. And through that great confession, we are then baptized into the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of our sins, Acts chapter 8 or 2 verse 38, so that our sins might be washed away, Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. Now we see in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47, the Lord will add to the church daily those who will be saved, those who will be immersed in the watery grave of baptism for the remission of their sins, putting away to death that sinful man with its sinful passions and being raised to walk as a new creature in the newness of life, having the eternal hope of heaven above. Of course, it doesn't end there though. You become a member of the church at that point, but you also must be a faithful member of that church. And so, of course, if you seek to become a Christian, count the cost. Do what needs to be done, as this might be the last opportunity that you have to make your life right with God. If anyone has any need, come now as together we stand and as we sing.
2: far from his presence come today, hear his loving voice calling still. Call, Patient, loving, and tenderly still the Father pleads. Hear, O oh, hear him calling, calling now for thee. O oh, return while the Spirit in mercy intercedes. Hear his loving voice calling still Calling ling now for thee. Oh, weary, every, every prodigal come. Call, ling now for thee. Oh, weary, every prodigal calm. father, and to spare, hear, oh hear him calling, calling now for thee. Lo, the table is spread and the feast is waiting there. Hear his loving voice calling still, calling now for thee. Oh, come, now. call, 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 thee, call, 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 call,